Take your Bibles, turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. So, on that fateful Tuesday, I was winding down my radio morning show when the news reports began to uh, break through that a a commercial airliner had hurtled into one of the Twin Towers uh, in New York City. I barely had enough time to process that stunning news when a few minutes later I got a report that another plane struck the second tower. And to my horror, I recognized, along with everybody else, that this wasn't an accident. We were under attack. And in those moments, I had to to change from uh, disc jockey to news broadcaster as I began to try to explain to my audience what in the world was going on. And and then also, in the middle of it all, sometimes shifting from news broadcaster to pastor as, as I'm sharing scriptures and trying to share words of hope and encouragement to my audience. And in the middle of all of that, reports came about another plane hurtling into the Pentagon. And a few minutes later, another plane crashing in Pennsylvania. Never before had anyone in my generation on such a massive national scale had to deal with anything like that before. And the whole country was in a state of extreme shock. The United States had always been aware of terrorists that were out there seeking to cause harm. But in the wake of 9-11, many began to realize that we didn't take that threat seriously enough, uh, that we had been lax and we had been complacent. And the days that followed brought the sobering realization that while we weren't at war with the terrorists, they were constantly at war with us, constantly planning, constantly scheming, constantly probing for weaknesses long before 9-11. It was a wake-up call for America, and it changed everything. The the nation hasn't been the same since. I I thought a lot about that in the years that followed and how what happened really is is reminiscent of the life of a Christian. Many Christians are like the U.S., how the U.S. was before 9-11, complacent, at ease, maybe a vague awareness of, of, of spiritual threats that are out there, but not really taking it seriously, too distracted by entertainment and personal pursuits to see that, that, that while they may not feel like they are at war, there are hostile forces out there, dark powers who are at war against them constantly. Uh, whether you know it or not, like it or not, understand it or not, really doesn't matter, uh, regardless of whether or not you're on a wartime footing, The satanic powers are seeking to destroy you every single day. Uh, Indeed, they're not just at war with individual Christians, but with the church collectively, even Harbin's Community Baptist Church. The devil hates the church because Ephesians 3.10 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's that's been one of my, my anchor verses in this series that I keep going back to. I think it's so important to understand Ephesians. And and what that verse means is that the church is not only meant to point men and women to God, but but the church in in a way is meant to display something glorious about God to the entire universe, even to the demonic rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the powers and principalities, Paul calls them in Ephesians 6. And God's wisdom is displayed to those powers through taking sinners like us who used to be hostile to God and to one another, people who wanted to be God, frankly, Uh, people who used to be a part of the devil's dark kingdom in bondage to him, people who used to uh, 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 be slaves to him. And according to Ephesians 2, Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, has redeemed us from the devil. Uh, He has saved us, he's forgiven us, and he's reconciled us to God and to one another. And he is transforming, God is transforming ex-slaves of Satan and to free sons and daughters of God. Indeed, the Christian Paul describes in Ephesians 4, 20, 24, is one who has put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this then produces a church full of people who are increasingly imaging the goodness and the holiness of God, walking in unity and love and, and patience and forgiveness towards one another, a, a people engaged in spirit-filled worship, mutual encouragement and exhortation and thanksgiving and, and a selfless submission that seeks the interest of others 
a church where husbands and wives lay down their arms and serve one another, uh, where the hearts of children and parents are turned back towards one another, and even where masters and slaves regard one another as equals, as brothers seeking the best for one another. We saw that last week in Ephesians 5 and 6. And so, the, the redeemed believer is being increasingly changed into the image and likeness of the person that Satan hates the most. And this is why the devil hates the church. He hates you. He hates you in a sense it's not personal. <laughs> it's because you're looking more and more like God. The church is a constant reminder to the powers that God is wise, that God's wisdom has overthrown them, and that they have lost. And the powers hate that. And so they're bent on doing everything they can to hinder God's purposes. And therefore, you can count on the devil and his demonic co-conspirators. You can count on them coming against this church, against your marriage, against your home, against you. And so, for the sake of our church and for the sake of our families and for the sake of the nations who desperately need to hear the gospel message that we've been commissioned to deliver to the world, for the sake of all of those things and for the glory of God, we need to suit up for battle. The, the stakes in spiritual warfare aren't just personal. They aren't even just global. They're cosmic. And so I hope over the next few weeks as we consider the topic of spiritual warfare that we're going to come to Ephesians 6 with just a sense of, of, of weightiness and, and urgency and seriousness. So, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our captain, our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he delivers his battle orders for us. Ephesians 6, we're going to start at verse 10 and read on down through verse 13. The Holy Spirit says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we approach this very crucial section in Ephesians chapter 6, I pray that, that your spirit would illuminate the text for us. And I pray also, Father, that you would protect us from the schemes of the devil, uh, that you would silence the voices of of any spirit save the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit speak this morning and equip us for the battle that you've called us to fight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If we don't recognize the nature of the battle that we're in, we're going to make little to no progress in moving forward in our faith as as individuals and as a church family. And in our text today, Paul begins to unveil some critical truths that we, we've got to realize if we're going to walk worthy of the calling that God has called us to. And, and the first important thing to, to see is that the Christian life is war. The Christian life is war. Uh, Christianity is a path that in one sense brings peace and comfort, no question about that. But what many people don't realize is that Christianity is also violent, even dangerous. The call to follow Christ is a call to a level of warfare that an unbeliever will never know. And for a first-time reader of Ephesians, it can be rather jolting to come to this section in Ephesians 6. The, after reading about the glories of God's redemption and the beautiful new life that the Holy Spirit produces, uh, all of a sudden, after describing all of those wonderful things, those heavenly things, uh, Paul now concludes his letter with what is essentially a call to arms, uh, a preparation for battle. He says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, it's interesting, while on the one hand, this exhortation is a command for us to obey, on the other hand, the imperative, be strong, is actually in the passive voice in the original language, and so it could be translated, be made strong. 
In other words, while Paul is commanding his readers to to action, he's also simultaneously reminding them that the power for such action will not come from within themselves, but from an external source, an outside power. Now, right away, that should give you a clue that that what what we're being called to is something that's going to be absolutely impossible to do just relying on our own resources. You can't be a Christian in your own strength. And you will not be able to to withstand the attacks that are guaranteed to come your way in your own power. Now, if our strength is to come from God and His might, how does that happen? How are we to be made strong? Well, he tells us in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a closer look at the armor. And we're going to take a look at what that means for us practically. But suffice to say for now that, one... We've been forewarned that the Christian life is not smooth sailing. It's going to be an intense battle. And two, God has given us means to fight the battle. There is a strength available outside of ourselves that will equip us to successfully fight the battle. Paul's call for the Christian to be strong is reminiscent of God's repeated exhortation to Joshua. Remember the book of Joshua? We were there what, last year? We were in the book of Joshua, and, 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 the, and God repeatedly called him to be strong and courageous as he was about to do battle against the powerful Canaanites. But what we're about to discover in, in Ephesians 6 is that our opponents are much stronger, much deadlier, more horrible than anything Joshua ever had to face, because our opponents are not even human. So the Christian life is war, but secondly, we need to see that the main war is spiritual. The main war is spiritual. Paul says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, that can be really hard for us to believe because flesh and blood relationships, human to human relationships really feel like a battle sometimes, don't they? Some of the most difficult, some of the most painful experiences that I have ever gone through in my life have been in regards to relationships, human-to-human relationships, especially relationships in the church. For others of you, some of the most intense battles you faced are at home. Uh, You're at war with your kids. Kids, maybe you feel likewise. Uh, Some of you married people have have felt like that your marriage is a battle zone. Uh, It's a minefield. And so you're thinking, yeah, uh, that stuff you wrote in Ephesians 4, Paul, about loving unity in the church, and, 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 and chapter 5, Paul, about loving harmonious marriages and those great relationships between parents and kids in Ephesians 6, that all looks good on paper, but that ain't happening in my life, Paul, and it's a flesh and blood struggle, and there's a flesh and blood person that I see in my house every day, and that person's making life really difficult for me right now. Now, I, I don't think that Paul here is denying real conflict and real struggles in flesh and blood relationships. I mean, goodness gracious, if anyone understood those sorts of things, it was Paul. He was persecuted. He was hunted. He was afflicted by human opponents. Even while writing Ephesians, he's under house arrest. Paul knows all about flesh and blood conflict. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is seeing with eyes that can perceive something that often we can't see. And that is that even even when we're going through conflict with a flesh and blood person, there is another deadlier and more important battle that is being waged at the same time. There's a reason why those flesh and blood relationships can be so hard sometimes. Paul says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the true battle lies. And Christians very often live in ignorance of this. Uh, And and the reason why is because we have been impacted by a secularistic, naturalistic, Western worldview which sees the physical universe and what we can perceive with our senses as the ultimate reality. It's a worldview that dismisses the supernatural as irrelevant superstition. Do you really think that everything that's been happening this week in Minneapolis, New York, Atlanta is solely a result of human activity. If your worldview is shaped by Fox and CNN, 
That's all you know. But they don't know the half of it. You know, we, we all seem to love a good conspiracy theory. But there's a dark, true conspiracy in our country and in our world that runs deeper than most people realize. There are dark, sinister, intelligent, powerful beings behind the scenes that are throwing fuel on the fire of hatred and division and hostility and the looting and the racial tension, and we're, we're all suckers for it. The satanic powers love what is going on, and they are encouraging it, but you won't hear about that from your news outlets. This is why a secular worldview or any world worldview other than a scriptural worldview isn't going to be able to process and deal with appropriately what's going on. Uh, we're not going to be able to handle it from a proper framework. Scripture says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But the scriptures also tell us that even more than the world, the devil is coming up against and attacking the church. But the Western church, influenced by a secular naturalistic worldview more than we realize, doesn't quite see it that way. This is, and this is why often our prayer lives are weak and anemic. This is why we live life as if it's all up to us and our own strength. This is why whenever there's a conflict or problem, we, we completely think of it and deal with it only considering the natural realm. Even in, in regards to our struggles with sin, many of, many of us perceive it in terms of only an internal struggle. And while that is very true, very true, that our warfare against sin involves the killing of internal desires, if we disregard our external enemy, we're only fighting half the battle. Now, there are other cultures that get this easier than we do here in the West that, that have a much more intuitive awareness that there are things going on in the universe that are beyond the physical realm and, and what we perceive with our senses. And they may come to wrong conclusions about those things if they're not being informed by the Bible, but they rightly perceive that there is more to the world than meets the eye, and, and in that way, they are more advanced than most Americans. We need to be more influenced by Scripture than by so-called scientists who think that they are so enlightened and who think that they understand reality. From the beginning of the Scriptures, we see the devil waging war against God and His people. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent enticed Adam and Eve to commit treason against God. Later on in Scripture, we read of the devil plotting to completely ruin the faith of, of God's servant Job as he unleashes hell, literally, in Job's life to, to do it. In 1 Chronicles 21, we're told that Satan rose up against David and enticed him to sin. In the New Testament, Jesus gives Peter a sobering warning when he tells him that Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Indeed, Jesus himself wrestled against Satan for 40 days and 40 nights in the, in the wilderness as the devil assaulted him with temptations. Now, we, we may say, well, that's, that's King David. That's Peter. That's Jesus, the heroes of the Bible, the really important people. Uh, uh, those are the ones that are targeted by the devil, but I'm just little old insignificant me. I'm nothing. Surely I don't have to concern myself with these matters. I go to work, take care of my family, come home, try to carve out a life for myself. That's, that's my focus. That's what I concern myself. I don't have to think about these big cosmic things. Surely I can fly under the radar in this cosmic warfare. And the Bible says, not so. The same Peter who was warned by Jesus about the devil, and by the way, the same Peter who did not take that seriously and ended up falling flat on his face big time, that same Peter turns around, he's learned his lesson now, he turns around and warns you in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter was writing that to regular Christians, y'all, people like you. The devil is restlessly prowling, ready to consume anyone, including you, if you're not sober-minded, if you're not watchful. 
And this is why, going back to Ephesians 6, if you back up to verse 11, Paul says you need protection. You need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes in the Greek is methodeia. We get our English word method from that. Uh, The word carries the idea of craftiness, uh, deception. Uh, The word was used often to describe a wild animal cunningly stalking its prey and then pouncing on it unawares. Uh, Methodea implies strategy, it implies tactics, and the the devil is a master tactician. He's had thousands of years to study humanity, you know. He knows us pretty well. Uh, He knows you pretty well. He has a file on you, I'm sure, thicker than you can imagine. He knows ways to bring you down. He knows where you're vulnerable. He's always probing, always looking for a way into your life, into your home, into your church. Case in point, turn backwards to Ephesians 4. If you're in conflict with someone in the church or with your spouse or with your kids, you got to recognize that there's another more important, more critical struggle going on behind the scenes, and if you're not armored up, you're going to lose the battle. And in Ephesians 4.26, we see how two simultaneous conflicts are going on and how a lack of sober-minded vigilance regarding the more critical and visible conflict opens you up to being beat by the devil. It says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So here this speaks of a human conflict uh, when, you, when you are wrestling against flesh and blood. And he, and he talks about the need to reconcile as soon as possible. Work it out as soon as possible. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. But then he says, behind the scenes, there's another more important battle going on. And, and he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Now, some of you in this room know about this. You struggle with anger. And you need to recognize, you've got to recognize that beyond the flesh and blood person that you're angry with, there's another battle going on behind the scenes. And if you don't realize that, if you don't fight that spiritual battle, if you're not wearing the whole armor of God, you will give the devil an opportunity or a foothold, as some translations say. That word foothold, that's a military term. And the idea is that the invaders can capture a point a beachhead, so to speak, and then from there, they can launch further attacks and cause more destruction. And undealt with anger is one way to give the devil a beachhead in your life, allowing him to more easily then strike into other areas of your life. And every single one of us has certain sins, certain weaknesses, certain uh, certain beachheads uh, that, that are vulnerable. And it may not be anger for some of you. For some of you, it it might be lust or uh, covetousness or uh, unforgiveness or pride or self-righteousness. All those things and more can be beachheads. Uh, There can be places where the devil can get a foothold in your life and undermine not just your own personal spiritual life, but also this new community, this new society that God is building, the church, that's designed to, to display the wisdom of God to the powers. So ultimately, we the church must realize where the true battle is. So first, we need to recognize that the Christian life is war. Secondly, that the main war is spiritual. Third thing we need to recognize is the fearsome strength of our enemy, the fearsome strength of our enemy. By exposing the true battle as being some, something beyond flesh and blood, Paul highlights the real danger that we're in. He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul here gives the impression of a vast, organized hierarchy, a cabal of dark beings engaged in a universal conspiracy. That word cosmic powers, uh, some translations... uh, say, world powers. Uh, That's from the the Greek word, kosmokratoros. Or if you want to anglicize that word, cosmocrats. Cosmocrats. Some think this word may refer to high-ranking demons like the the princes of Persia and Greece mentioned back in Daniel 10. You remember Daniel 10? Really interesting, fascinating scripture where a good angel was dispatched to Daniel in response to his prayers, and that angel was delayed 21 days, three weeks. Why? Because he was withstood by an evil being that was called the Prince of Persia. 
So there, there are some very powerful dark angels, demons out there, and, and this one that is mentioned in Daniel 10 is so powerful that he resisted the good angel for three weeks. For a, it was a three-week battle. I have no idea how angels fight for three weeks. I mean, this is so way beyond us, isn't it? And the point is, is that these beings that we're up against are in a totally different class than you and I in regards to just sheer, raw power and strength. No human is a match for an angel. We know, we, we know how powerful the good angels are, right? We, we've, we've seen angels level Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw one that brought the nation of Egypt to its knees. And, and, and here, we have a, one of these good angels that's being withstood by an evil one. It's a lot of power here. This word, cosmokratoros, uh, is only used here in Ephesians in the New Testament. Nowhere else in the New Testament will you find this word. But we do find it in other ancient Greek writings in connection with the pagan gods. Uh, for example, an, ex- an inscription on a Roman bathhouse was found that mentioned three gods, three Greek gods. And this is what it said, Zeus, Serapis, Helios, Cosmocratoros, unconquerable. In ancient writings, a cosmocrat would be an entity of immense, unfathomable power. And that should really sober us up because one mistake sometimes we make is to downplay the devil. And he sometimes he, he becomes a cartoonish kind of figure, like the, the little man in the red pajamas and the pitchfork. Maybe you've seen that kind of artwork before. Bible never depicts the devil in flippant, uh, just uh, uh, trite terms like that. The devil, the, the devil, the chief cosmocrat, is a terrible cosmic being of great power. In Revelation, he is depicted as a giant dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, and that represents immense power and immense authority. Martin Luther, in the lyrics of the song that we just sang, A Mighty Fortress, rightly wrote, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. The Bible really wants us to have a realistic and sober-minded picture of who the enemy really is. To speak casually or flippantly about the devil is not a characteristic of the people of God. It's actually a characteristic of false teachers. There's an interesting passage in Jude where he's writing against these false teachers and he's listing all of their traits, and one of them is a casual attitude towards these powers and principalities. Jude writes this. Uh, This is in in verses 8 and 9. Uh, of Jude 1, Jude 1. There's only one chapter in Jude, but in verses 8 and 9. He says, yet in like manner, these people, these false teachers, blaspheme the glorious ones. That's a really interesting title, glorious ones. He's not talking about good angels there. He's talking about the bad ones. He's talking about the demons, the glorious ones. I suppose in their own way, these dark angels have a glory of their own. That, that, is, that, is, that is brilliant, and that is, you know, you might be tempted to worship one if it, if it displayed that kind of, of glory, a dark glory, so to speak. He says they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Interesting. That's not all. Second Peter 2.10 says this. Again, this is about false teachers. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, the good ones, though greater in might and power than those false teachers, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Interesting. So we see both in Second Peter and in Jude that the good angels, who are way more powerful than we are, have a sober-minded attitude towards the evil angels. Not cavalier, not flippant, not dismissive. The Bible gives us some glimpses of the malevolent power of these beings. In Mark 5, Jesus meets a demon-possessed man, and energized by the power of wicked angels, he was so physically strong that nobody could subdue him. They chained him up, and he just snapped the chains. 
In Acts 19, we, we have Paul doing signs and wonders and casting out demons, and we're introduced to some Jewish exorcists. They're unbelievers. They want to get in on the act. They want to take on demons. And you remember what happened? The demons said, said to, to these guys, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Guess where that incident happened? <clears throat> Do you know what city that happened in? It was in Ephesus. And, and the next verse in, in Acts 19 tells us that this incident became known to all the res- residents of Ephesus. Folks, the Ephesian Christians, these folks that Paul's writing to, they were well familiar with the powers. The, the, the Gentile ones used to serve them. Every time they knelt down before the altar of the goddess Diana, or they sacrificed to Zeus, or engaged in drunken worship to Dionysus, they were actually engaged in the worship of dark forces because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons. The Ephesians were steeped in the occult and magic living in fear of the powers. Their, their, their whole life was about uh, trying to appease the powers. Maybe wear this special amulet. Maybe that'll protect me. Maybe if I learn this kind of spell or incantation, that can get them on my side and they can, they can kind of do what I want them to do. Now, certainly there's some superstition there, right? But on the other hand, unlike narrow-minded, ignorant, modern Americans, they were very much aware that there was something out there and that there were dangerous forces beyond the material world that they had to reckon with, but they interpreted those realities and what to do about them in the wrong way. But when revival came to Ephesus through Paul's gospel preaching, they learned the truth and they turned to the Lord in repentance and Acts 19, 19 says that a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I'm not sure how much that is, but it sounds like a lot of money. It's a lot of books, a lot of occult books. This town was steeped in that kind of stuff. But they made a break. They made a break from the powers. And so when the congregation at Ephesus is is sitting there and they're hearing Ephesians read to them, and and they get to Ephesians 6, and now they're hearing this talk about these dark powers, I'm sure some of them thought about their old ways, and perhaps a chill went through them when they realized that though they were done with the powers, the powers were not done with them. These rulers and authorities, these cosmocrats, do not take defectors from their kingdom lightly. So these verses would strike them harder than they strike us. And it would have been easy for them to shrink, to sink back into that, that, old, that old fear of the spirit world that kept them in bondage. And honestly, for any of us with a proper view of the strength of the enemy and what we're up against, any of, any of us should be given pause and concern as well when we come to Ephesians 6. But... Thanks be to God that not only do we learn from Paul that the Christian life is war and that the main war is spiritual, and not only do we learn about the fearsome strength of the enemy, but guess what? We also learn about the superior strength of our God, the superior strength of our God. Notice how Paul's description of our fearsome enemy in verse 12 is bracketed before and after by reminders that in God, there is all the power and resources needed to win the battle. Paul says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. These are not just commands. They're promises. They're promises. That as we put on the armor of God, we, what, might be able to stand? (laughs) Hopefully we'll stand if we keep our fingers crossed. No. 
that we actually will be able to stand against the schemes, against the methods, against the attacks of the devil. We can't fight these beings through natural flesh and blood means, through, through your strength, through your willpower. We fight through the supernatural means and the supernatural resources that God has given us. So if one mistake some make is to downplay the devil, now this addresses a mistake that other people make on the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is to overestimate the devil and make more of him than we ought. Almost like a dualism, right? The Eastern worldview where there's good and there's evil, but they're equal. And from, from, from eternity past, they've just been kind of going at it toe-to-toe, the light side and the dark side. And, and, and we're just kind of waiting to see who's going to win in the end. Sometimes one gets the upper hand and sometimes the other gets the other hand. That, that sometimes is how people, even church-going people, think about the battle between God and the devil. And that, that maybe, maybe God is going to win, but boy, he's going to barely pull it out in the end. And we're just kind of rooting them on, cheering them on. We need to recognize that although we are puny compared to the devil, compared to the cosmocrats, the devil is pathetic compared to God. The devil and God are not equal. Far, far from it. Earlier I mentioned how the devil set his eye on Job to ravage him, and he did. He struck Job big time and all of his cruel hate. But if you're familiar with Job, what did the devil need to do before he could lift a finger against Job? He needed to get permission from God. The devil can't do whatever he wants. The devil is on a leash, and the length is always determined by the Lord. He is restrained by God's sovereign will. The devil is no match for God. I saw a picture the other day online, one of these cheesy Christian pictures where you got the devil and God, the devil and Jesus arm wrestling. You know, and, and, and I'm like, devil's arm should not be there. <laughs> it should be here and through the table and ripped off. Devil's no match for God. God could extinguish the devil's life in a millisecond. The only reason God lets the devil live is because the devil serves the purposes of God. What what about that that fearsome demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs and breaking chains and all of that? What what did those demons do when they saw Jesus? We're told that this demon-possessed man fell on his knees and the demons were cowering and quaking and they were terrified, pathetic beings pleading for their lives. And Jesus sends the demons out of the man, and the demons had no choice but to obey the Lord. Strength of the Lord prevails over the devil and his demons every time. The same strength that Paul is calling you to stand in against the evil one. This same Jesus that caused such terror in demons, this same Jesus that Paul says in Ephesians 1 is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, and God put all things under his feet. This same Jesus is your God, and it is in his power you will stand the evil one, and having done all, stand firm. And so the Bible unmasks these demons, unmasks these cosmocrats for who they really are. On the one hand, mighty and powerful and terrible compared to us. And on the other hand, weak and pathetic and impotent when compared to God and completely at the mercy of a God who is completely sovereign over them. Isaiah chapter 27 looks forward to the final defeat of evil where the prophet writes that in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And so while Martin Luther in his hymn on the one hand acknowledges the power of the devil and that on earth is not his equal, remember he also writes, and this is why we keep singing the song, the prince of darkness grim, We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. A mere word from Christ is all that's needed. 
And so, to the joy of these Ephesians who once lived in bondage to the powers, Paul reminds them that Jesus is the power that triumphs over the powers. And this same Jesus lives in you, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Colossians 1.16 tells us that for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The rulers and authorities, the invisible powers, not only did Jesus create them, but it says he created them for him. He created them for himself, for his purposes. And God's purposes always went out. Again, this is not dualism. We're hoping God's going to win. Our God is in the heavens, the Bible says. He does all that he pleases. And it must be so frustrating for, for the devil because everything the devil does contributes to his own defeat and humiliation and serves the overarching purposes of God. This is seen clearly in passages like Romans 8, 28, where Paul says that God works all things together for the good of his people. That means that even the attacks of Satan are among the things that God uses to work towards our good and his glory. God turns that thing around because he intended to use even that for our ultimate good and benefit. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The ultimate example of the devil's impotence before the Lord is in the betrayal of Jesus. The Bible says that the devil entered into Judas and led Judas to betray Jesus. And yet, as the devil there is lashing out at Jesus and coming against him, what's happening in all of that? In all of that, the devil is, under the sovereignty of God, setting into motion a chain of events that leads to his own defeat because because the betrayal of Judas leads to the cross. And it is Jesus' death on the cross that breaks Satan's power over us. As sinners, we were wide open to the devil's accusations against us highlighting our guilt before God and the fact that we deserve to be cast into hell for our sins. But on the cross, those very sins that condemned us were placed on Jesus and punished in Him. And so Jesus has paid the sin debt for every person who believes in Him. So even the devil's rebellious, hostile defiance ends up serving the purposes of God that ultimately overthrow the devil, freeing slaves from his captivity making us God's special people. And so Paul writes in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your sins, God made alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and check this out, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Nobody's saying amen out loud, but I hope you're saying it in your hearts. Amen to that. And in Revelation 12, the Apostle John writes that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and his angels, those other cosmocrats, were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Now, for some of you, that might, all this might beg the question that if all this is true, if the dragon has been thrown down, if Jesus is victorious and all things are under his feet, why does Paul tell us to get ready for battle? Jesus has already won. An illustration that helps me is from World War II. In the closing days of the war in Europe, Germany was surrounded by the allies on every side pressing in, and everyone knew that it was only a matter of time. The war was won. D-Day was a success. And the Germans didn't have enough men or resources or energy to win. And yet, at the same time, The war was won, but there were still tough battles to be fought, and there was still dangerous and deadly conflict going on. 
The war had been won, but Hitler and the Axis powers stubbornly refused to concede, and they fought on. It was as if the knowledge of his defeat made Hitler dig in his heels even more. And it reminds me again of Revelation 12. The devil and his angels are overthrown. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection rendered uh, uh, the, the accuser of the brethren as, as, as defeated. The war's over. The victory has been won. The empty tomb proves it. That the empty tomb is D-Day. And what's the devil's response? Surrender? No. His response is anger. After the dragon is thrown down in Revelation 12, a voice from heaven says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. Even the devil knows he's lost. He knows his time is short. He knows it's over. But instead of conceding, he comes in great anger and wrath. And, and, and you read the following verses in, in Revelation, and it describes the dragon as going after the people of God. Not because he hasn't been beaten, but because he has been beaten. And he is venting his fury and anger on us because through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's, it's not just that the devil has been beaten, but the very existence of the church continuously rubs his nose in it. Rubs his nose in his defeat. The, the church is a continuous in your face to the devil. It's, it's a continuous sign and signal that he's done, that he's lost the war. God is victorious and supreme. Christ has clearly won the war, and it's our privilege to join our general in the mop-up operation. And just because it's mop-up doesn't mean it's not fierce and intense and dangerous. The enemy is not surrendered. He'll eventually be fully subdued when Jesus throws him into hell, but he'll never surrender. And that's why we need the armor and weapons of God, and we're going to begin to take a closer look at our warfare equipment starting next week. As I close, I, I want to remind you that in this cosmic conflict, there is no neutral side. Either you're in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. Either you're a child of the living God or you're a slave to sin and Satan. And while it is so, uh, a sobering thought for those of us who are believers that the devil is our enemy, how much more terrifying is it for those who are unbelievers whose primary enemy is not the devil but God? If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've not received Him as Lord and Savior, you need to recognize that you are an enemy of God. And that, my friend, is a spiritual war that you can never win. And yet the good news is that God does something that the devil never would. God, God died and was raised for His enemies to reconcile lost sinners to Himself. Because unlike the devil, God loves His enemies. And the Scriptures say that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet fist raisers against Him, Christ died for us. He didn't die for people who were on God's side. He died for those who were willful slaves to the powers. And even though the wages of sin is death and hell, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to be an enemy with God. You can be a friend of God. Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't be like the devil and dig in your heels and refuse to surrender. Surrender. Throw up the white flag now. While there is yet time. There is no more time for the devil. It's done. It's over for him. We know it's going to happen to him. But for the rest, repent and turn to God while there is yet time. You can be a friend of God. And the Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, God loves to extend grace and mercy, and I pray that today you would join the winning side in this cosmic war and join the family of God. For those of us who already believe, I want us collectively as Harbin's church to consider whether or not we are faithfully imaging the truth about God to the world 
and to the onlooking powers and principalities. What areas are we as a church and as we as individuals giving the devil a foothold? I want you to prayerfully identify those vulnerable areas that are in your life, those, those beachheads, and then starting next week, after you pray about those things, we'll begin combat training as we learn more about the armor of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the Word of God. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with the truths that we have considered today, and that these, these truths would not just be academic things, just kind of theological things floating around in our brain, but that they would actually affect our hearts, would impact our lives. Father, help us to see the reality of the war that your people are in, and the war that you've called us to. There, there's, there's no room for heads in the sand. There's, there's no room for just hiding. We're, we're in the battle. And so we either take up arms or not. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us take this seriously so that we might be more effective as a church more holy as a church and as individuals, and that our very existence would glorify You, and that we would increasingly, effectively message to the powers that they're done and that God has won. Father, protect us from the schemes of the enemy as we commit ourselves to taking the fight more seriously that's going to probably mean that some of us are going to have some intense spiritual battles even this week, even as we're dismissed and going into the parking lot. Temptations will come. So, Father, help us to be alert, sober-minded, and vigilant, and to remember that as we resist the devil and the strength of, of the Lord, he will flee from us. In Jesus' name, amen.